You are listening to Friends of Europe's podcast. Don't miss our debates on global and European issues that span political, economic, social and environmental challenges and follow our website at friendsofeurope.org. We appear to have a full house. People are still arriving. Good, good afternoon, a warm welcome to you all. My name is Darmendra Kanani. I'm Director of Strategy at Friends of Europe, and I'm your moderator for this short one-hour discussion on urban responses to refugees. Um, we have uh, a very interesting panel for you to debate this point of um, the various different points of view on this matter. It's an issue that raises as much passion, heat, adversity and difference than any other. And it's the one that seems to have really called into question, to a certain extent, the future of Europe and the, the politics of Europe, the economics, um, and what brings Europe together or apart. Um, we've noticed just in the... Well, we've, we've all witnessed rather than noticed. We've witnessed just in the past week or so the hardening, the very hardening of the debate globally on this matter. We had in, um, in Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu saying very clearly that a certain group of migrants had to leave by the end of March. If not, well, they'll get money to go, but if not, they'll, they'll use other tools to be able to incarcerate these people that don't leave. In the same, same period of time, we've seen what Poland have done, what Hungary has done, and other nations are suddenly kind of tightening the screw on the issue of refugees and migration and how to deal with this particular problem. What we're here to do is, as Friends of Europe, is to help you think about connecting some of the policy issues here and the issues here to debate, I hope, the right type of concerns and areas that we need to focus our attention on and think about, I hope, how do we change some of this narrative? How do we actually help people think differently about this debate and make greater sense of it and take some of the heat and passion out of it and actually think long and hard about the fact that actually in this year of various anniversaries, various anniversaries, and it was Angela Merkel actually who invoked whether yesterday in Davos whether actually have we learned the lessons from 100 years ago. And it suddenly feels, really does feel, when you hear the rhetoric from politicians, both in Europe and elsewhere, it really, you feel a panic and a silent panic in your heart and in your head that actually we haven't heard, we haven't actually learned the lessons of 100 years ago. If we think about the dynamics that took place in 1918 and before, we are witnessing some of the same dynamics now. And let's hope that we are able to learn the lessons from over 100 years ago. It gives me a great pleasure to... Introduce firstly, before we go into our panel, um, Handa, who is the uh, president of the um, committee that some of you are members of here uh, and are hosting, uh, hosting this debate. I'll ask her to say a few words before we actually introduce the panel. Handa, over to you. So, we have a mic. We have a mic for you here. Sayin moderator, I think this is the first time that I'm addressing you in Turkish. Uh, Değerli panelistler, değerli katılımcılar, hepinizi burada görmekten son derece büyük mutluluk duyuyorum. Katılımın bu kadar olmasından mutluluk duyuyorum. Çünkü konunun öneminde düşündüğümüz zaman artık bu konunun hepimizin ortak konusu olduğunu anlıyorum. If you want me to continue in English, if you prefer. Ah. I feel myself as so a... I don't think we were prepared for you to launch into Turkey. So then we, I could have prepared people to say which channel to turn on and talk to their mics on. So, but, but, no. but please do continue. Challenges are alive. Absolutely they are. So we are ready for any kind of problems. Uh, I feel myself as a very lucky person. Why? Firstly, I have been in European regional politics for more than nine years now. And the four years of it has been uh, as the president of the Assembly of European Regions, where I'm the honorary president now. And I'm the first elected non-EU president of the Assembly, where Mr. Magnus uh, Bernson is the president right now. And uh, being directly involved in European regional politics has also made me understand and empathy very well what the European citizens are thinking and fearing, and also what the European politicians are feeling and fearing. On the other side, I have also been a regional politician in Turkey, two years as the vice president of Istanbul, plus 
I'm a citizen of Istanbul myself, that big metropolis, for more than 25 years. So I'm in the daily life, every day, observing the challenges due to the refugee issues, both on the refugee side and also the citizen side. Apart from that, I'm a medical doctor. That's why in my heart, deeply, it's a human tragedy for me. That's the most important point on my personal side. But on the other side, I'm happy to see. For example, uh, it was one year ago that His Royal Highness Prince Laurent of Belgium and I were, were visiting a hospital in Brussels where they took care of the refugees, whether they could pay or not. All the staff was really doing their best to help these people. Well, in Turkey, as you know, we are hosting more than half of the Syrian refugees everywhere on the world. Yes, you know, Turkish people like guests, we like hospitality, but sometimes when it starts to have social, economic, and political impacts, then people may start to suffer about their future and they may have some worries. They are the same worries as we are all humans, basically. They are, all, they are the same worries that the European citizens are having. So indeed, when we talk to each other, we understand more about each other, and that helps us to find more constructive solutions for the challenge we are having. Well, of course, uh, because of the high number of refugees we are having in Turkey, uh, starting from the national government, uh, big steps, preventions have been taken. But there is one subject we sometimes neglect, that is the urban areas. Indeed, the urban areas are the unseen uh, players. As they are close to the citizens, they are the first ones to act for solving the problems with the refugees. And that's why I'm really happy and proud to have Mrs. Shahin here. Firstly, she is a woman. We need, it means we need more women in politics, both at national level and at local level, because she is a very good model uh, about uh, fighting with the challenges on refugee issues at the local level. And as they are, as the Assembly of European Regions, deep in our heart, as the whole organization, we have also been working on the benefits of refugee issues. It's not just the problems to see all the time, but we also have many benefits. And in our committees, working groups, we have been really working on uh, how Europe, how other regions can benefit from this refugee issue. And as urbanization is increasing, it means more than uh, this number of refugees will continue to uh, start living in the urban areas. So that's why we need to get all together and try to find common <coughs> constructive solutions and support the urban uh, politicians and bureaucrats. But otherwise, in the future, we are going to blame ourselves because it's our generation that's facing the challenge right now. And if we do not do enough, it will be too late. Thank you. Thank you well, very as much. promised, I'm not too long. Not at all. Thank you very much. That's very much appreciated. <clears throat> okay. Thank you very much for that hand. That's much appreciated for framing this conversation. I'd like to use another framer for this conversation, actually. I'd like to bring the voice of citizens into the room. We have a debating platform called Debating Europe. We have some 2.9 million uh, people that actually engage in a dialogue and, and debate around the issues that we are talking about today, but a range of others. But I want to quote three um, citizens uh, across Europe and what they think about this issue in terms of uh, urban responses to refugees, but also the issue more, more widely. So we have Gabrielle from Germany. Why is it that in some cities people are keen to volunteer and help refugees, whereas other places are hostile to refugees? Is it based on good and bad experience with refugees in the past? Kostaras from Greece says, why are some cities better able to respond to refugees than others? Is it because some have more money than others? And lastly, Victor from UK says, which are the biggest success stories across Europe when it comes to cities absorbing and integrating refugees? Why aren't we championing these places from the rooftops? 
three very different but similar views across the piece. I'd like to kick off with um, um, a view from a locality. What we have on the panel for you two is we have a mayor, we have an MEP, we have a president of a region, and we have an advisor to the commission. So we have a nice mix to engage in this conversation. I want to start off with the mayor of Gaziantep, um, um, Fatima, firstly, to kick off. Um, You've been at the sharp end of this debate for some time. You've been heralded as someone who's actually really stood up and um, stood your ground and made sure you've made a convincing negotiation both within the commission but also locally. And you've, uh, you've appeared to have created the right circumstances. What is it? What is it that you've been able to do that other cities have not been able to do? Why is it that Gaziantep has been a, become this success story? Over to you. Çok teşekkür ediyorum Sayın Başkan. Kıymetli panelistleri, Sayın Piri'ye, değerli Asemplerin Başkanı'na, hanımefendileri, beyefendileri sevgi ve saygıyla selamlıyorum. Bu güzel organizasyon için emeği geçen herkese çok teşekkür ediyorum. Bu konu önemli konuda görüş ve önerilerimizi paylaşmak üzere birlikte beraber olduğum için duyduğu mutluluğu ifade etmek istiyorum. Tabii dünya, İkinci Dünya Savaşı'ndan sonra en büyük göç hareketiyle karşı karşıya. Dolayısıyla bir taraftan sürdürülebilir kalkınma üzerinde her ülkenin, her şehrin çok ciddi bir şekilde ulaşmak istediği hedefler varken bir taraftan bilim ve teknoloji çağının her türlü fırsatını ve riskini yönetirken diğer taraftan da dünya göç meselesi üzerinde daha başka bir şey söylemesi, daha çözüm odaklı götürmesi gerektiği bir dönemi yaşıyor. O yüzden Avrupalı dostlarla özellikle Avrupa Birliği'nin kalbi olan bugün Brüksel'de bu önemli organizasyonda bir Türkiye bakışını, bir Gaziantep deneyimini sizlerle paylaşmış olmaktan mutluluk duyuyorum. Öncelikle 2011 itibariyle 7 yıl önce başlayan ve komşumuzda 910 kilometre sınırımız olan komşumuzda e, kimyasal bombalardan kaçmaya çalışan, canını kurtarmaya, çocuğunu, ailesini kurtarmaya çalışan çok büyük bir insanlık dramıyla karşı karşıya kaldık. İki seçeneğimiz vardı. Ya kapıları kapatıp sınırları kapatacaktık, e, birçok insanın ölümüne e, neden olacaktık ya da bize yakışan komşumuz, akrabalarımızı empati yaparak Bizim de başımıza aynı şey gelebilir anlayışıyla bir insani ve vicdani olarak ev sahipliği yapacaktık. Biz bize yakışanı yaptık ve kapılarımızı açtık. Türkiye olarak açık kapı politikasını e, uygulamaya başladık ve bir anda e, bölge başta olmak üzere 3,5 milyon e, mülteciyle e, ve şehirlerde baktığınız zaman bunun %70'ini de bölgedeki şehirlerin yaşadığı bir durumla karşı karşıya kaldık. Tabii bunun hem ulusal yönden hükümetimiz, Sayın Cumhurbaşkanımızın liderliğinde buradan en az zararla çıkmak ve bu toplumun ihtiyacını karşılamak için çok net bir duruş gösterdi. Ama bize düşen de çok şey vardı. Özellikle 2014'te belediye başkanı olduğum zaman çok büyük bir tecrübem vardı. Aile ve Sosyal Politikalar Kurucu Bakanlığı yapmıştım. Özellikle göçle ilgili çok sayıda ülkeyi inceleme fırsatım olmuştu. Bu aslında benim için ve bu meseleyi yönetmek için çok büyük bir deneyimdi. İşte Gaziantep'in belki de en büyük farkı burada başladı. Çünkü gelen göçü yönetebilmemiz ve 2 milyonluk şehrin 500 bin yani dörtte birinin, yani düşünün gözünüzü kapatın, Brüksel'in yarısının bir şehirde yedi yıl boyunca misafir edildiği bir şehri düşünün. Bu şehirde önce kendi vatandaşınızı mağdur etmemeniz gerekiyor. İkincisi size gelen, size sığınan o insanları çocuk, kadın, engelli, yaşlı, mağdur, muhtaç olmak üzere bütün dezavantajlı grupları göğsünüzde kucaklamanız gerekiyor. Önce bir acil eylem planı yaptık. Temel ihtiyaçlar konusunda halkımız çok ciddi destek oldu. Sivil toplum çok ciddi destek oldu. Onların temel ihtiyacı gıda, giyinme, barınma gibi hemen ilk anda kamplara yerleştirdik. Ama şu anda 
500 bin mültecinin yalnızca yüzde onu kamplarda yaşıyor. Yüzde doksanı şehirde yaşıyor. Ee, bu mesele daha uzun soluklu sürme ihtimaline karşı da orta ve uzun vade planlamamızı yaptık. Önce bir tespit yaptık. Kendi belediye bünyemizi kuvvetlendirdik. Yani çok zor bir meseleyle karşı karşıyaydık. Çünkü yerelleşmemize rağmen e, haftada iki bakanın, iki büyükelçinin Gaziantep'e geldiği uluslararası bir merkez olmuştuk. Hemen kendi içimizi kuvvetlendirdik. Bugün aramızda olan daire başkanlarımız var. Mülteci meselesinin belediye kapasitemizi güçlendirdik ki bunu yönetebilecek güce ulaşalım. Arkasından çalıştaylar yaparak biz bunu nasıl şehrin kalkınmasında bir fırsata dönüştürebiliriz? Sürekli şikayet eden, sürekli talep eden değil. Bunun bir kalkınma modeline dönüştürebileceğimiz noktasında yönetmemiz gereken alanları belirledik. Birincisi eğitimdi, ikincisi sağlıktı, üçüncüsü iş gücüydü, dördüncüsü sosyal rehabilitasyon ve uyum politikasıydı. Dört ana başlıkta bunu çalıştık. Eğitim meselesi en hayati meseleydi. Eğer bu çocuklar sistemin içine girmezse bir nesil kaybolacaktı. Yarın PKK, PYD, DAEŞ, bir FETÖ gibi terör örgütünün bir parçası olabilirdi. Derhal eğitim hayatına kazandırmamız gerekiyordu. Fatma, Fatma, can I, can I stop you for a second? Sorry to, I, this is me, I'm like this a bit, sorry, you have to get used to me. Um, interrupting you like this. All of that sounds, and it sounds like a, the, the kind of the, res, the best recipe in terms of thinking, development, dialogue, you set priorities in place. How do you get past the kind of the feelings of local people feeling that actually they're getting things that we are not getting? How do you get government, local government, to actually connect and be organized? One of the experiences in, in mainland Europe is that systems, especially local governance systems, are simply unable to cope with the flow, with much less flow than what you've experienced. How did you pull it off? Why is it that your systems seem to work, whereas in certain parts of mainland Europe they don't work at all? And how do you deal with the kind of, let's, people describe the host community, you know, when you say a guest say, staying for seven years, there's this thing about how do you deal with any of the tension that create, is created by actually giving a lot to people who are seen as being potentially undeserving? Şimdi iki bacaklı yönettik, iki bacaklı. Birincisi, onlara ne söylediğimiz? Onlara e, bunun, yani mülteci bazında onlarla ilgili kısmı yönetirken bu şehirde yaşamak için onlara düşen şeyler nedir? Yani gettolaştırmadan, radikalleştirmeden, terörizm bir parçası yapmadan veya nefret söylemlerini ırkçılığı artırmadan birlikte yaşam. Birlikte yaşayacağız dedim. Birlikte çocuklarımız birlikte okutacağız. Parklarda çocuklarımız birlikte oynayacak. Birlikte çalışacağız. Çünkü insanlar gettolaştığı zaman, kutuplaştığı zaman birçok tehlikeyi gördük. Ve gelen herkesin mağdur ve muhtaç olmadığını, doktorunun, öğretmeninin, mühendisinin olduğunu gördük. Mesela Suriyeli bir mülteci hastaya Suriyeli doktorun bakması, Suriyeli bir öğrenciye Suriyeli öğretmenin bakması, ona öğretmenlik yapması üzerine bir kendi içimizde çok hızlı bir söylem birliği oluşturduk. Arkasından en önemli şey dildi. Dille ilgili açtığımız meslek kurslarında Türkçe öğrenmeleri ve o şehirde yaşamaları için bir toplum merkezi kurduk. Hukuki bilgilendirme, danışmanlık, ihtiyacı olan rehberlik, her türlü desteği onlara verdik. Ama ikincisi kendi toplumumuzdu. Kendi toplumumuz eğer 7 sene misafirlik olmaz, 3 gün misafirlik olur, 5 gün misafirlik olur, 7 sene misafir olmuyor mu? Onlara da iki şey örnek verdik. Birincisi... Sabredin, dönüyorlar. Çünkü bir Cerablus örneği yaşadık. Çünkü Fırat Kalkan'la beraber Cerablus'ta biz Deraş'tan temizleyince bölgeyi 3 bin olan Cerablus nüfusu 50 bine çıktı. Herkes kendi toprağına güvenli alan oluşturunca herkes kendi toprağına dönmeye başladı. Bu bizim açımızdan çok güzel bir şekilde anlatılacak bir başarı hikayesi oldu. İkincisi şunu söyledik, elbette sorunlar var. Gelince kira fiyatları yükseldi. İşsiz olan birisi, e, Suriyeli birisi işe girdiği zaman ondan dolayı ben işimden oldu deme tehlikesine karşı e, dedik ki burada istihdamı açık işte ancak yüzde on mülteciyi çalıştırabilirsiniz dedik. Yani 
Birlikte yaşam modelinde biz Suriyeli mülteciyi öncelik vermedik. Açık iş varsa önce benim kendi vatandaşım buna ihtiyacı varsa önce onu ama beraberinde de yüzde on kotayla Suriyeli mülteciyi çalıştırmak için bir çalışma bakanlığından bir yönetmelik çıkardık. Dolayısıyla biri gelip bana başkanım ben işsiz kaldım veya biri bana başkanım kiram çok yüksel dediğinde önce haklısın diyorum. Haklısın ama biz de şunu yapıyoruz. Çünkü umut varsa bu sefer nefret oluşmuyor. Umudu korumak gerekiyor. Onlara dedik ki devlet çok büyük yatırım yapıyor. Devlet de bize pozitif ayrımcılık yapıyor. Türkiye'nin en büyük konut projesini bugün sizin için yapıyoruz. 50 bin konut. Yeni bir kendi vatandaşımız için. Yani bunu mülteciler için yapmadı. Kendi vatandaşımız için. Dedik ki biraz sabredin konut yapıyoruz. Konutların 3500'ü bitmek üzere. 10 bini planlandı. 5,5 milyon metrekare üzerine yeni konut planlıyoruz. Türkiye'nin en büyük su projesini yapıyoruz. En büyük ulaşım projesini yapıyoruz. Yani iki bacaklı yönetim her bir grubun kendi ihtiyaçları üzerinde başka bir şey söyledik. Teklifleştirmedik. Onların nefret söylemleri üzerine sevgi dilini kullandık. Ve empatiyi çok güçlü bir şekilde herkesin birbirini anlaması gerektiği üzerine kullandık ve bir Gaziantep modeli oluşturduk. Okay. Excellent. Okay. Hope staves off hatred. I like that evet. statement. Şey But değil. it's about how do you maintain that hope and continue it, which in the circumstances we find ourselves can be a very difficult one. But it's you know it's it's it's excellent what you've been able to do, and long may you sustain it. But I think we'll come back to you uh, in the in the conversation about how you dealt with extremism, what support you got from Europol and the European Commission over time. But we'll come back to that, because I'm interested in that, I'm sure, as is, as is the audience. I want to take a view from the Parliament now, uh, and Cathy. Um, you have been long in the game, if I can say that, on this particular issue. Um, uh, well, but you've been, obviously, you know, you've been, you've been in Turkey, you know, the, you know the territory. So I, I, drawing from your local experiences, you are an MEP, so you are taking what you hear from constituents in that region, in that area, and bringing it to bear on the work of the, you know, the committee, the Foreign Affairs Committee, Foreign, Foreign Policy, um, uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. Tell me what you think are the, now the current, current implications for diplomatic efforts and foreign policy in Europe at the moment, as you see it, especially given it's a year, it's a year before elections, there's going to be a lot of horse trading taking place between nations. We've seen what's happened with Turkey and the deals that are being struck. From your perspective, how do you see it? What are the implications for foreign policy and diplomatic efforts? Well, thank you for inviting me, first of all. Pleasure. Um, um, I think it's a, a very important topic, which will remain an important topic for the decades ahead. Uh, and yes, we are also facing challenges, of course, this year. But uh, I would lie if I would say we will find a solution in one year time and we won't. I mean, this is really a challenge for all of us around the world for, for coming decades. So we'll have many debates like this um, by the time I'm long gone from Parliament. Um, just, just to start with, if you allow me, you know, mm. what is, it's just a, for me it's not just a political issue. It's my father who was a refugee when he was 16, fleeing Hungary in 1956. And if 60 years ago the Netherlands would not have been welcoming refugees from behind the Iron Curtain, I would not be here a proud representative of Holland, right? <laughs> And um, um, that is always, you know, your background you take with you, of course, also in your, in your daily life. Now, coming from the situation in Holland, which I think is very comparable to, to, to um, the sentiments being, um, um, you know, in, in other member states, in the Netherlands in 2015, we had uh, 60,000 asylum applications. Most of them uh, were refugees. And the focus was always on what went wrong. And most often, things went wrong when local governments were not deeply involved in the planning. Mm -hmm. You know, when the central authority just decided that in a pretty small community there would be 2,000 people placed as of tomorrow, yeah. that is when things went wrong. Um, that is when the community started to, to object. On this, in the same year, and I was surprised to hear that, we had 60,000 Dutch people who registered officially as volunteers to work with refugees. But if you would look at the balance in the media, you wouldn't think this was the case. So actually we had one registered volunteer <laughs> wanting to spend at least 12 hours a week 
uh, doing uh, activities with refugees as much as we had asylum applications. And we sometimes forget it when you hear the debates mm -hmm. in the European Parliament or in the national parliaments. That's why I always find uh, debates with local authorities and mayors much more useful because they are actually the ones dealing with the situation and know exactly uh, what, is, uh, what is at stake. In the Netherlands, whenever we open an asylum center, there's always some protest. But when we close it, there's a bigger protest because people got used to it. They get to know the people. There's, you know, business environments who are, of course, also benefiting uh, from, from new people coming to the government. So it's always a... Um, that's why I think information is always crucial and local governments have to be actively involved in order to steer that in a, in a right direction. Um, when it comes to, to um, the debates, I think, in a welfare state where you don't want to have second-rated citizenship, and I don't want that as a social democrat, I want refugees to have the same rights in European countries as the people who live there. If you don't want second, there is a limit to the number of people you can take in. I mean, a welfare state you cannot have with totally open borders without any limits. So, and the question, of course, the political question is always where is that limit, right? We only notice this perhaps when it's too late. Now, here I come as a Turkey rapporteur. I visited Turkey um, um, since I was in position in, in 2014. And my first visit to Turkey was to Kilis the town just on the border near Gaziantep um, uh, on between Syria and Turkey, where already then in 2014, more than half of the population was Syrian. And uh, we just heard the mayor of Gaziantep telling her, her city, we are in 2018, this war started in 2011. Mm -hmm. 2011 was the <coughs> year that people started to come. And we only struck a deal with Turkey on how to also assist refugees in 2015 by the time it became a European problem. You know, we sometimes notice problems way too late. Um, to come to specifically your question, uh, because I know we are limited in this to also give the audience uh, the time to ask questions. At least there's one area of cooperation where I'm happy we have a very good cooperation with Turkey. I wish it would have started earlier than 2015, but that's the way it is. It is in the, in, in, in the migration uh, field. What I'm always worried about, and here we have uh, Turkish representatives uh, from several local communities, is how, with our efforts, we are not increasing local tensions. You know, we always say we need to assist the Syrian refugees in Turkey. But the Syrian refugees live in the same community, in the same, um, as the other citizens of Gaziantep. And that's why I think it's very important to have the community model mm. and how to involve the community when we are speaking about assistance. You know, we should, at least with our aid, certainly not increase the tensions in a local society. And that's why, um, in general, of course, we, we have come to a point where in Europe we cannot find an agreement on how to shoulder the burden of an equal division of refugees. And although also on paper it sounds nice, we also have to be realistic that most people want to go to the richer parts of Europe, not because they're more rich, there are more opportunities for work, for better integration. Because we can't find the agreement inside of Europe, we are trying now to use the Turkey model um, in a way to shut down borders to Europe and just keep refugees where they are without really a willingness to set up legal and safe routes for refugees. We haven't made real concrete steps there. We promised to the Turkish government in 2015, we do this deal in order to shut down the illegal routes. We don't want people to die in the Mediterranean and to open legal and safe pathways for refugees. We did this much. So uh, we have challenges ahead. Unfortunately, the EU is still just as divided internally as we were in 2015. No concrete steps have been taken to solve that issue. 
Um, but in this year, that goes back to my point. So you're making, you know, uh, all the points you make are absolutely valid and really important. That, especially that thing about how do you, when you're thinking about integration, when you think about aid, don't think about separating needs, but think about the needs of a whole community, which is quite a radical statement because actually most people will always, when you're a local municipality, councillor, mayor, whatever, you won't often think in those terms actually about, actually, I'm serving a whole community, I'm not going to differentiate. And there's a clue in that in terms of actually making things move forward. But in this, we have 12 months before the new election, you know, the election next year and it feels like when I as I my opening remarks were the debates hardened even more it's almost as if um, the genie's out of the bottle in terms of actually saying what you want to say which is harsh which you wouldn't have said even 100 years ago so potentially not in the, with the media that we have that we have three men who've said the most disgusting things potentially about you know uh, what they think should happen to migrants and refugees and what their states will do. In that context, what do you think needs to happen in this 12 months? Because it seems like it will be, be the issue that will either divide or bring nations together in the elections next year. Well, if I'm, if I'm sceptical or if I'm ironic or negative, I would say, unfortunately, Europe needs another crisis before it sees itself how to deal with it. Because mm. it's true. It's totally stuck. Uh, if I'm more optimistic... I hope that local, local politicians, mayors are the ones who will going to lead the debate. Because once you start speaking with mayors from the same countries where you have national politicians doing the rhetorics you have, you have a totally different discussion. So let's encourage, you know, politicians, local decision makers to be more leading in this discussion. Because then we have, I would say, much you, then you don't have the difference between Viktor Orban in Hungary anymore to the same extent as, to, as, as, as we have now. Mm -hmm. okay. But there are no quick, easy fixes. No, there are Sorry no magic bullets, absolutely. But it's that thing about how do you... And I've heard this before, people, and it's quite depressing. People are saying, actually, we have to have a crisis. So, same debate on climate. People are saying, we really need a climate, climate crisis before people really wake up and do something. And people are saying similarly on this issue, that actually we need some sort of cataclysmic issue that's going to suddenly bring people together. It feels we, like we don't We learn. had it. You know, in 2015, mm -hmm. I think... With the exception of some member states, everyone was saying, I remember Angela Merkel saying we should have legal pathways for 500,000 refugees a year. Mm. If we would have had that, we would not have had the 2015 crisis. My own party leader at that time in the Netherlands said, and he, we were in government then, uh, 200,000 uh, uh, refugees per year. These are numbers we are not discussing anymore. Mm. I think maximum there are two or three member states still now, one and a half years later, who would dare to even uh, put on the agenda the issue of safe and legal pathways. So it's very sad. We had a window of opportunity. We greatly missed it because even the progressives in Europe were all debating on the EU-Turkey deal, whether it was immoral or not, instead of focusing on the real challenge, which was that for the first time we had a window of opportunity to mm. have safe and legal pathways. Mm. And the whole progressive side of Europe was just competing with each other about the morality of the deal. Indeed, indeed. Let's move on. Uh, and I'm sure we'll have questions and uh, more debate on this particular topic, but the time is short. Magnus, can I turn to you? Um, President of a region, so you have that kind of purview of, of looking more widely, but you also face the challenge of understanding what the differences are, both at a local level but at a regional level. And I'm particularly interested in that point about distribution. How do you get to a point where... I remember when I was in the UK some ooh, 15 years ago and uh, suddenly the UK was hosting a whole influx and the national government suddenly said, actually... Scotland would have this much, London would have this much, and that was it. And it created, basically, the, the issue became economics because of the money. You had to follow the money and the refugee. And it became a very big debate about actually hosting. Because sometimes some small towns suddenly had a 10% increase in their population. What's, what's your perspective on this particular dilemma that we continue to uh, um, observe? Uh, thank you. Uh... And thank you for letting me take part in this uh, discussion. Uh, first of all, uh, when discussing why some communities fare better than others, uh, uh, when it comes to this question, I, I would say that it's very important to know that no city is alike in any other city. Indeed. But we can learn from each other. In, in Sweden, there are 
big difference between municipalities, uh, population-wise, but also economically. Some of them have uh, resources and, and experience in dealing with these issues, uh, which others don't. Uh, taking these uh, differences into account, uh, that tilts the scale in favor of some of the, um, of the municipalities. Having financial muscles uh, or uh, a flexible structure in, in, in place helps in cope with, with the situation, uh, such as a drastic uh, increase of re refugees. In, in order to level uh, the playing field, uh, there ought to be some more guidelines regarding the uh, integration and the help of the uh, actors uh, with, the, with other actors in, in the challenge. I don't think you can not work together with the national state in, in, in the distribution, uh, for example. But having said that... <laughs> so before you move on, then, yeah. who's responsible for those guidelines then? Uh, I, I would is, there, as the, is the discussion between national and local happening yeah, in your well, experience? Of, of course we need to do that together, but the responsibility is in Sweden, uh, uttermost the, the national level, that have the responsibility, but the local and the regional levels are doing all the work. Mm. I will come back to that. Okay, okay. Yeah. Don't forget, you've only got five minutes, so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. And, of course, sometimes, especially on national and some and European level, you can argue that I don't like the, situa the situation we are in, so I want another future. Yeah, and then you can argue about, oh, this is the fantastic future that we want, and, and, and you do politics from that. Uh, that's usually not the... <laughs> the Base where local and regional uh, politics starts their um, their discussions because we are uh, dealing with our citizens' uh, everyday life, uh, the, all the problems and the opportunities for our everyday for, for the for the everyday, and and we meet the people in in, in the shops and in, in the. Uh, everywhere in the children's uh, soccer games or, or whatever, so so. You can't start a discussion about something that's not there. You need to take uh, in count, uh, uh, you need to deal with the, the situation as it is. And, and I, I would say that in representing my region, Västergötaland uh, in Sweden, uh, we have several responsibilities in the terms of dealing with um, migrants. And we are both a uh, healthcare provider, and uh, we also work with different dimensions uh, of regional development where integration is a key aspect in, in providing individual and businesses uh, with uh, inclusive society where they can develop and, and grow. Uh, and during the, the most intensive phase of migration in 2015 and 16, in Sweden, during 2015, there were uh, over 160,000 people coming to Sweden at that time. And for my region, it was more than 2% uh, of, of, of the population. So, of course, there was huge mm -hmm. uh, challenges for us. And I, I would say that, yeah, we, we were not prepared. And we wouldn't have managed if it weren't for, for the civil society that made a huge uh, impact in, in, in dealing with this situation. But that was that situation. Now we are in another phase, and now we are discussing more about integration and, and uh, building a society. And that's another thing, and, and that creates other ten tensions and, and also uh, other opportunities. So... So as, uh, as I said, as a healthcare provider, we, we know that a lot of the refugees that come from, uh, from uh, Syria, for example, have a, a background in that field. Mm -hmm. And in the old days, we had a system for, for someone coming to Sweden that needed to go through step by step until they were in, in, in the ordinary labor, labor uh, market. But... This is not, that's not the way we can work anymore. We need to find more uh, um, adapted uh, ways to, to, to work with this. And, and we have created a lot of uh, fast tracks, uh, especially for people in, in, in um, healthcare, but also for engineers and, and, and uh, areas like that. Before, it could take six to nine years before you were ready to go okay. into production. And now you're ready after, after two and a half or three years. So what happened to make that happen? Oh, 
What was it that, that made yeah, that we, pull we, you to we need to, to we needed to be uh, flexible. Sure, but it, was it because the private sector accepted this? Was it because government decided? Was it because the universities said actually we're creative? How did you actually manage it? Because people would be interested. Yeah, in it. Of, Why of is course, it you're able to create that flexibility yeah. and others aren't? Due to demands in the labor sector, that okay. was, of course, right. one of the driving, uh, driving uh, forces. We needed a lot of people in, in the healthcare sector. Right. Okay. That, that was one of the, uh, of the uh, reasons. But it's a, <laughs> that's also a, a waste of, of resources sure. not, not to do this. Uh, to, to let people uh, go in, in a passive state for, for so long time as they did before in our system that created also a lot of other problems. Uh, the children get in, uh, integrated very quickly because uh, they go to school and they have friends with Swedish origin and the, the, the parents, they took too much time until they got into the sort of uh, majority society. And, and they also created a, a, a difference between the children and, and the grown-ups. And that's terrible uh, for, for creating a good society for the future. So okay. that's, I mean, there were a lot of driv uh, driving forces to, mm -hmm. to do this. I, I won't lie to you. We have still a lot of problems. But, of course. But it, it's uh, important to to see all the benefits of, of trying to be uh, working more uh, individualized uh, ways than... But clearly what you're saying is that you understood there was a... a lab you did some labor market now, but in reality, you knew you had a shortfall in a particular sector. You had a, des a desire to actually integrate in a particular way, and you worked in a collaborative cross-government way, potentially? I don't know. Yeah. But that seems to have been the, yeah. the, the kind of part of the ingredient. Yeah. But you'd be able to pull that off, which some others are simply not able to do. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, I, I, and I, I, I'm coming from the regional side and or for the local side, of course, I, I want to uh, uh, say that we had a, a very important role in this. I, I, in, in the Swedish um, system, the, the local and regional uh, levels have a strong position. And of course, when we are telling the, the national level how, how we see the, uh, the situation, they need to listen and they need okay. to, to uh, make sure that the, uh, the different agencies are working together with us. Okay, excellent. I will come back to you very yeah. briefly, but I, I want to move on to, uh, last but not least, Reina, advisor, uh, migration, demography at the Commission, part of the Political Strategy Centre. Um, what's your take on this? Um, and I mean, I'm not going to, I mean, you can say something very briefly about why you think certain areas are able to do this better than others or certain cities are able to do it than others um, um, in, in, on this particular issue. But I'm particularly interested in the fact that many of us have known that 10 years ago, this wave that, was, that we've encountered in the past four or five years was predictable. There are conditions taking place right now in Africa and elsewhere in our neighborhood, where we know because of displacement that's taking place right now because of climate and because of actual um, a warfare, that we are likely to see in the next five years another wave. What is it we do to try and prepare ourselves? And what role do you play to advise the Commission in actually taking some lessons from the past? So firstly, why are some better than others? Your take on that. And actually, what are you doing right now to think about foresight? Because actually, we have the information on our doorstep right now. It's happening in Syria, in North Africa, in the Horn of Africa, it's elsewhere. We know what the climate changes are going to be in Africa and elsewhere, which are going to lead to another wave. What are you doing to provide the foresight to the Commission to actually think about this? Yeah. First, uh, I wanted to say that Turkey is doing a great job. Uh, that's often uh, underestimated and should be acknowledged a lot more uh, by hosting uh, more than 3 million refugees. Um, and it works in Turkey for three reasons. The first is that you have uh, a will of the government, of the central government, saying, yeah, we give status to Syrian refugees. Yeah, we don't treat them as uh, non-deportable aliens, but we, and this creates a path of in, uh, on integration. But only because Turkey has decided so that it gives status and it gives a future to these people inside Turkey. And it's not stockpiling Syrians uh, in order to send them back to Turkey tomorrow. Hmm? So that's, that's the number one thing. Mm -hmm. The number two thing is that there, it works way down to the local government, that the local governments, at least the ones we heard of, feel supported by the national government. So there is no, no tension in the sense which we sometimes have in Europe, that the local government wants one thing and the national government has a different position. Yeah? So, and then 
usually here it works also uh, when a city politically is in the same hand as the national government. Yeah, so in your case, I think Gaziantep also has the advantage that uh, you have the same Politics political matters. constellation in place Indeed. locally than you have nationally. Indeed. Sometimes in Europe we have the problem that if the if the local mayor is from another party, there is, can be party competition over the issue, even if the, the national lines are not that divided. Sure. Yeah? So let's not forget about that. Um, so wh when does it work? It works when the national government and the local level are on the same page. And this uh, is not always the case. I think it's important to see that Local governments often tend to say, yeah, we need to take care of people, and uh, regardless of their status, and we, we need to take care, and we have, you have civil society always organized at the local level and never at the national level. So you have, there is a tendency of caring about people uh, and not first to ask uh, about an ID and, and a status. Yeah? Whereas at national level, in many European countries, the question is the other way around. I mean, they don't want to have people starving in the streets, um, um, but um, that there is a more security-driven approach, yeah? saying asylum seekers ought not to work. Yeah? Let's wait. Uh, whereas at local level, you can say, yeah, hmm, but they know they can do something. But then the national government would say, yeah, but then they get integrated. But how do we get rid of them after they have been denied asylum? Yeah? Which is often the case that people are not getting a status finally. And then a whole, a whole range of debate sets in in Europe what to do with these people. Yeah, can we send them back to their home countries? Maybe the home countries don't want them back. Um, yeah, or at local level, you then have a coalition of people saying a, a church, a school, we have seen these kids, these are my neighbors. So often you have then an anti-deportation coalition that you see at local level, uh, which goes against the grain of a security discourse mm -hmm. that you find at national level. Yeah, let's not forget about that. The third element, I think, which is important is the, the institutional setup of labor markets. Mm. And I think Magnus has alluded to that. The people who came from Syria to Europe choose three countries basically to go to, Austria, Germany, Sweden. That's the only countries you should not go to because they have a very highly institutionalized labor market without a certificate and without showing that you have spent many years inside an educational or apprentices or training system, you're not allowed to work. Even if you have done the same job at home, there is no way of getting on the side into the, go to the US it's completely different yeah you have a completely liberalized labor market uh, certificates uh, don't play a major role in the US labor market sure. uh, or in Spain or in Portugal or in parts of Italy so there is parts of Europe where it would be easier to get into the labor market than in Austria Germany and Sweden the Syrians and Iraqis and Afghanis who came choose the three countries where it's most difficult now we can work at the institutional to deinstitutionalize labor market regimes the way that Marcos has described it, um, you can only do that to a certain degree mm. because the nationals being in that education system also don't want to see themselves bypassed um, by, by, by refugees getting fast-track tra treatment. So there is a balance. Yeah? Mm. You, have to, you have to be diff I mean, needs to be. So learnings. I think it's very important to, to, to see that the flow from Africa Today, I'm not talking about tomorrow, the flow from Africa today mainly comes from countries where there's no civil war. Yeah? The build-up in Syria or in Iraq or Afghanistan was visible because these are countries where we have intervened, where we had troops, where we had a civil war, where there was Western engagement to a certain degree, where we were supplying arms to different uh, groups of governments or non-government. Um, and so uh, we have contributed to the troubles, but at the same time, we saw them built up. Yeah? Yeah. So that's in the case of Africa, there is no major civil war going on today which produces a huge refugee flow to Europe when you look at the figures. The number one country where people are coming from is Nigeria, and when you ask them, they're coming from the south, not from the Boko Haram area. The number two country in Africa is Cote d'Ivoire. Um, so Nigeria is the country with the largest economy, Cote d'Ivoire with the highest economic growth rate. Um, people are coming from Senegal, from Gambia. These are countries where, yeah, there's poverty. People might not like uh, to live there, would see a better life in Europe. But they will never qualify as political refugees under the Geneva Convention in Europe, most of them. Yeah, there's exceptions, so that's why you need scrutiny. But the vast bulk is very different in their future status from the Syrians 
that have come in 2015 okay. and 16. So you cannot just say, let's take the learnings from 2015, 16, how to integrate genuine refugees and apply this to Nigerians who are seeking a better life and are risking this life uh, on the way to Europe. Okay. The reality is that we are going to have to confront that dilemma as we move ahead, as we have this conversation about what we mean by human rights and asylum. And as climate increases its impact, we are going to see climate refugees across Europe in vast numbers over the time to come. It's something that we might need to think about. I want to open it up to the audience now. We have very little time, unfortunately. We have got people with mics. So it's your opportunity to ask questions or raise concerns. What I'd like you to do is, because we are so short of time, no speeches, no grandstanding, just simply a question or a comment. You have to be really brief, otherwise I will cut you off. I'm so sorry. Say who you are and say who your questions are addressed to. So, gentlemen here and the lady at the back there. Hello. My name, yes. my name is Ali Turkeli. I work as an EU consultant. Um, and first of all, thank you very much for the opportunity. In fact, my question is to the floor, on, uh, to both tables, if I may. First of all, uh, we've heard two successful case studies today. But my question is with regards to local government, collaboration in local government, how are the Turkish local government and the EU, their EU counterparts, are actively cooperating in this field, if they are? And uh, to the other table, uh, what's the EU's take on this in order to facilitate this net, uh, let's say, network of collaboration? Okay, I'll come back to that, and I won't ask all of the panellists, I'm afraid, because we haven't got time. But I'm going to ask the lady there at the back, fourth row down. Hi, thank you, Ludmila Silva from Brazil, um, the daughter and granddaughter of Syrian and Lebanese immigrants. Um, so Brazil has taken Americans after the Civil War and has taken a lot of people. We're taking Venezuelans and Syrians right now. Um, our focus in Brazil, like the last speaker was, was suggesting Europe should do, is to integrate them. They arrive with you know, work permits, they're integrated in society, uh, the government provides them with some language classes. The focus is on growing the pie, so um, not so much on the refugees taking away from, from the local population, but on opportunities that they can make to the country. Uh, shouldn't that be the focus of the debate? And then for the uh, mayor um, from Gaziantep, thank you for coming. Uh, what is the biggest challenge or the biggest obstacle that you face right now? vis-a-vis, uh, you know, funding that you're receiving from, from the EU. Can I just, just say that, you know, that your question, I'm not going to ask about the pie, because the question about the pie has been there for a long time. What we do know is that we don't, we are unable to change the narrative in Europe around it, making it into a positive rather than negative. We're not. Uh, we're not making it, we're not doing it. But we and can. And the fact, we, of course we can, but we don't, we, we have this debate, and you, you know, I'm sure, again, a product of refugees, you know, here I am, etc. But I haven't seen that narrative change, and I'm 50 now, and I haven't seen that development. We've been talking about this for so long. How do we get there? But my point is, how do you grow the pie? Because actually, we know in Europe that the, the demographics are going to create the, the gap that we have. But, so I would, I would ask you to think about that. But I'm going to ask um, uh, the mayor first to, to respond. Fatma, if I can ask you about the, the, the question about collaboration. Um, what... Very briefly, what level of collaboration is taking place that you see as hopeful, given what Magnus has said about the fact that actually it's a local collaboration that will really push the national states to think differently? What level of collaboration is happening? Çatışma bölgelerinin olduğu dönem başkanıyım. Daha önce Tahran'da dönem başkanı şu anda biziz. Aynı zamanda bu görevden dolayı Dünya Belediyeler Birliği'nin Afrika bir başkanın yardımcısıyım. Bu alan üzerinden, bu örgüt üzerinden çalışma metodolojimiz var ama yeterli değil. Aslında Sayın Peri'nin söylediği gibi yerelden yedir yerele çok daha güçlü bir çalışma yöntemini belirlememiz gerekiyor. Çok daha güçlü sesimizi duyurmamız gerekiyor. Böyle bir çalışma var. Ayrıca Belediyeler Birliği, Genel Sekreterimiz burada Türkiye Belediyeler Birliği. Türkiye Belediyeler Birliği'nin çok ciddi bir çatı örgüt. O konuda hem kendi içimizde hem uluslararası boyutta karşı muhataplarımızla çalışıyoruz. Ama sorun o kadar büyük ki daha güçlü çalışma yöntemini oluşturmamız gerekiyor. Birincisi o. İkincisi bütçeyle ilgili. En büyük sorun nedir diye sormuştu e, Brezilya'dan gelen hanımefendi. 
Bence sürdürülebilirlik. Sürdürülebilirlik konusunda çok büyük bir sorun var. Yapılan Türkiye ile Avrupa Birliği'nin arasında büyük bir anlaşma var. Türkiye çok net bir şekilde her şeye rağmen sözünün arkasında durmuş ve yasal olmayan göçü engellemiş durumda. Avrupa Birliği son iki ayda gönderilmesi gereken ilk dilimin 3 milyon 3 milyar euro'nun şu anda 1.8'ini göndermiş durumda. 3 milyar euro'nun gönderme noktasında da yeni imzalamış durumda. Ama Türkiye'ye gelen kaynak şu anda 3'ün 1.8'i. Daha da önemlisi Avrupa Birliği'ne göre çok hızlı geldiği söylenmesine rağmen sorun o kadar büyük ki bize göre çok yavaş geliyor ve çok dolaylı geliyor. Yerel yönetimler direkt istifade edemiyor. Ee, sivil toplum üzerinden dolaylı gidince çok ciddi e, dolaylı maliyetler oluşuyor. Personel gideri sabit giderler. Avrupa Birliği'nden çıkan parayla mülteciye ulaşan para arasında da fark var. Dolayısıyla bunların yönetilmesi gerekiyor. Yani bütçenin doğru yönetilmesi gerekiyor, hızlı yönetilmesi gerekiyor sürdürülebilirlik açısından. Okay. All right. I know there are plenty of hands and I've, I've got very limited limited time. So there were some hands up at the back, I believe. Lady here. This lady fourth row. Um, I'm Jerry McQueenie from the World Health Organization. Um, I just have a comment, not a question. I okay. firstly wish to thank the mayor so much for the wonderful partnership and collaboration. I think the work that has happened in the health sector is an inspiration there. The partnership directly with the Syrian doctors and the Turkish doctors and nurses is an example that we are carrying on to other countries. How did it happen? What, what, what is it that took place that made that, made that a success between the World Health Organization and what you're saying locally? I think it's the collaboration at the local level and at the governmental level okay. and understanding the needs of the different communities there. So this is, and okay. basically to cut a long story short, if you're interested in this, using this example and many other examples, and also working together with UNHCR and IOM, there is a toolkit for cities available on the web that directly looks at assessments for health services for large influxes of refugees, asylum seekers, and migrants. So this is something that is available to everyone, and it's okay. based upon that. And the second point I want to make as well is the Healthy City Network mm -hmm. um, is also has a working group that are looking at various different aspects, not just health, for migrants. This is for everyone that can join with this. And there's a conference from the 1st to the 4th of October. All right, thank you very much. That's much appreciated. Um, gentlemen here again, I hope this is a question. A very brief one, please. Uh, Yüksel Çilingir, basically a volunteer, uh, talking about Africa that the refugees are actually from non-war areas, basically. And in December, there was an initiation in the parliament to revitalize relations with Africa to the event, actually, with workshops and etc. So this is a very good proactive approach, I believe. I was wondering, and as Ms. Uh, as Kati said, this will go for decades. So I was wondering if there any, there's any proactive approach to define potential uh, refugee uh, cases that Europe or any other country or globally there's an action proactively. This, of course, very important firefighting today. I'm, worried, I'm also worried about 30 years later, if you don't do anything proactively today, like I hope uh, that it will help in Africa. So I was wondering... So your comments about how, how can we be proactive and preventative yes, about some of yes, this problem indeed, emerging indeed. in the next 10 years? Katia, do you want to have a very brief refer reference to that and any particular point you might want to make, Reina? But very briefly again. Yeah. Well, the, you do the same thing as I think many of us uh, always mistakenly say. We talk about Africa, right? Mm. And I, I, I think if we look at the various regions in Africa, various countries, you have such specific problems. Indeed. And um, um, so, so, so that one. I, what I'm worried about is that now we only see our whole relationship with Africa only to curb migration. You know, I'm really concerned about because in the past, at least as the EU, we always had, you know, uh, sustainable development, rule of law, all those things, which also I think in the long run 
more preventive when it comes to to big poverties, when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to the start of of, of, of local wars as well. So uh, I'm I'm afraid we're always looking at the very short term. In the long run, I think you have to make a differentiation. On the one on the one hand, when it comes to uh, refugees fleeing for war situations, I think the EU can be much more active and, and the whole world community in trying to prevent things from happening. I myself worked in Burundi for some years and we could all see the conflict coming and nothing was happening. Then the conflict came. So much more, uh, much more diplomatic involvement, uh, involvement there. Uh, when it comes to the economic migrants, you know, the... the Katika, can I say something yeah. very brief? Do you see the benefit of the, the connection between diplomatic efforts to be able to create the force? Because we have a, um, a something which we call Debated Security Plus, where we try to think about the security challenges in the future. And actually, how do you use diplomatic effort differently? Because you have, it's vastly costly, it's out there. But how do you use that more creatively to spot the future things and actually work in partnership with humanitarian agents and others to really deal with this in a different way? Probably by making it a priority, okay. you know. Right. I mean, uh, if it's a priority, it will work. I mean, we have we have EU uh, the EAS uh, active in all these countries, mm. and if we say, you know, our priority is look for the more long term, what can be actually, you know, um, um, in the future possible uh, conflict areas in a certain area or in a certain country, and I'm sure it's being done, but it's not yeah. being done as a priority level, okay. right? Mm. And our focus is now, let's make quick uh, return deals with African individual countries so we can return uh, people who have no right for asylum. And let's look for border protection in an area where borders play a much, historically much different role than they play in Europe. So sure. uh, we okay. need this long-term strategy. There on economic migration, we will not get away without providing also some legal pathways for economic migrants, especially in the countries where there is the need. I just want to make sure we don't combine the same with refugees. Sure. But, Katia, you're on the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee. Are you doing something about this in terms of what you've said? Are you taking, are you enabling your fellow members of the committee to say, let's take a longer-term view, let's look at the diplomatic service working more differently with aid agencies? Are you doing that? Yes, but, but I also have to say that mm. in the European Parliament, unfortunately, mm. we have this crazy division that Turkey falls under foreign affairs sure, sure, sure. and Africa falls under development. You know, so we have totally different colleagues dealing with the same question of migration. We have the Development Committee looking at Civil Liberties Committee when it's inside the EU, sure. and Foreign Affairs Committee on everything except for Africa. I know that. I was just being naughty. It's, I want to provoke you to we need make to, a statement. No, we need to change this. this you know, we also internally in our institution okay. need to be much more uh, All right. creative. I'm going to take two more questions before I head off. The gentleman here, you've been very patient. One, two, three, four, fourth row. There you go. Again, briefly. Just a, a very quick point on what you just said about what we try to do in the external action service where I'm working. On Monday, the council adopted... Your name is? Your name is? Angel Carro. On, on Monday, the council adopted council conclusion on the integrate approach, which try exactly to anticipate, prevent, be more alert and also to intervene faster, but not moving out of the crisis too soon. Okay. So that is very current. The other thing where we are working within the framework of the global strategy is on resilience. Okay. How can we help societies cope better to shocks and to internal or external sure. economic and so on? Of course, this takes a lot of time because it is a change of approach, but we are trying to put that on place. Okay, thank you. One final, was there someone at the back there? Had I noticed? No? Are we done? Okay, we are done. I shouldn't really. We've got two seconds, I mean two seconds, literally. Okay, or okay, right, I'm being mean. 30 seconds. I just want to highlight the importance of networks like UCLAG, uh, AR, CMR. National okay. authorities should use these platforms for connection between municipalities and local and regional authorities. We are at your disposal, so use our platforms. Okay. It's the easiest. Absolutely, sure, sure. But I think the, the, there are ways in which... 
there's also reaching out oneself and about how do you make sure that there is um, a level of uh, responsibility of other the dialogue that happens both ways uh, on this particular one. Well, colleagues, thank you. It's, it's been brief, and I know that you've been desperate to make other points, um, but this debate will continue for some time. I'd like to you know before you do that, so you're a bit you're a bit previous, but thank you very much for doing that. Um, I want to draw your attention to this publication. Um, this is not just a, an advert. Genuinely, it's about that point that was made about how do you preempt what's happening. So this is called global flows, migration security. And in particular, in particular, I draw your attention, it's quite kind of stark. Robin Wainwright, Wainwright, who is the executive director of Europol, makes reference to something saying, the memory of 71 migrants abandoned in a refrigerated truck is still with me. And then Médecins Sans Frontiers says very clearly in, in their piece that actually European migration policies are feeding a humanitarian disaster. But this is not just for today, this is for the future. I urge you to look at this, in the read it, because we, tr we try to take a perspective globally on this particular matter. I hope you'll continue to stay with us in this debate. Um, we have a whole programme of work on migration um, and integration, which is our Agenda 2018, again. So if you are interested in what we're doing, go onto our website, click on migration, and you'll get to this page where you'll see what we're trying to do is take much more of a preventative look at this, a more foresight look and a data-driven approach, but also learning from the past. Thank you very much. Thank you, our panellist speakers. It's been really great to have you here.